Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Well, here comes the fun part. I'm Pastor Tim. I want to welcome you to Heat Part 4, in which we are discussing the God's honest truth about love and today, sex. Now, parents, here's the deal. A little disclaimer before you rush your kids out of the room, okay? Let me give you a little reminder about why we're doing this series. If you remember, at the outset of this series, I really said that our world has three competing views of sexuality. And the first one says, sex is God. It literally is the greatest goal and the point of life. We direct all our time and our energies pursuing it. That's really the primary message of our mainstream media. If you think of the television shows, the movies we watch, the songs we sing, that's the message. I think of probably the most popular television show of the past, uh, you know, 10 years, Sex in the City. Here, uh, you can see right here, sex is the height of sophistication. If you are a sophisticated 20, 30, well, even 40-something, uh, have sex with everybody. Friends included. This actually is an ad from Sex and the City, which is being syndicated on TBS. As you know, it's a the family channel. Um, and you can see it says right here, very funny. It is portrayed in a winsome way. I mean, who doesn't love Sarah Jessica? She's so cute, you know? And the whole thing really is, is as they say, very funny. It's kind of a goof. That's where it, it leads. Sex isn't just God in the modern world. It's a goof. It's a punchline. Have sex with everybody, friends included, right? Very funny. Chastity? Whatever. I mean, what do you want to do? Grow up and be a 40-year-old virgin? That's the face of chastity. In our world, sex is a punchline. It's the butt bump of postmodern culture. That's what she said. I mean, how old-fashioned is that? You don't want to be that guy. Modern music actually reflects this view of sex, uh, you know, lyrically. I spent a little time on iTunes perusing some of the songs of the past few years. Here's a romantic gem by the, the uh, group called the Bloodhound Gang. Ba- you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. I mean, this is romance. This is Shakespeare. I mean, come on, 21st century romance. We're animals. Nothing more, nothing less. We're just driven by primal desire. So what's the big deal? Because sex is just a biological act and there's no redemptive spiritual value whatsoever. I often imagine, what if an alien like touched down and visited our culture, watched our shows, listened to our music, what would he think about sex? He would say, oh, sex is their God, capital G. It's funny, they treat it irreverently. It's kind of a goof too, but it's the goal of their existence. That worldly perspective really is what caused the early Christian church to swing the pendulum the other way. And they said, no, no, sex is gross. That really says, we don't talk about it. That's inappropriate. It's perverted. It's not something you discuss in polite company, especially in church. And that's why some of you are very nervous right now. You're clenching your bulletin. The church I grew up in had a don't ask, don't tell attitude towards sex. And as a boy, I understood the official doctrine summed up in one word. No. (laughs) And if you get married, it becomes a yes, but. But don't talk about it. Right? Married folk can, can, can do it, but don't talk about it. It's not polite. And that prevailing religious attitude about sex, obviously loaded heavy with shame and guilt and all sorts of ill feelings, is actually strongly entrenched in the history of the early church. Um, from early on, church leaders were, are scandalously silent towards sexuality, actually openly hostile at times. I told you about Origen. He was one of the early church fathers, about 185 AD. He was so convinced of the evils of sexual pleasure that he actually took a knife and castrated himself. 
Okay, this is the first, I guess, family planning moment. A <laughs> hundred years later, Gregory of Nyssa, this is around 394 AD, he taught that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire. And in fact, if the fall hadn't occurred, he said in his doctrinal statement, he said the human race would have reproduced itself by some harmless mode of vegetation. We just let the plants do it. By the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church began actually teaching that sexual love, both in and out of marriage, was outright evil. And by the 5th century, that's when priests were forbidden to marry for the first time. Then the church began actually limiting the days on which sex was permissible until literally half the year or more was prohibited. I mean, get the picture? Sex is gross, according to the church, and you're caught now. Because those two perspectives leave you stuck, right? I mean, one exploits it, and the other suppresses it. And that's tragic. Because I honestly think the Christian church's silence, our lack of clear instructional teaching on the issue, has generated a lot of confusion, ignorance, and unnecessary pain, actually, through the years. My wife, Colleen, and I had a psychology professor at Wheaton College who candidly shared the details of his wedding night with us as we were students in his Human Sexuality 101 class. His name was Dr. Butman. You can't make the stuff up. All right, I'm not, make, I'm not making this up. He asked Colleen. Uh, he and his wife actually married pretty young, early 20s or so, and they were married in the church that shh, never talked about sex. Except for the occasional sermon, you know, railing against the immorality in our culture, blah, blah, blah. So they were totally unprepared, very nervous about their wedding night. And so what he did, good man, he consulted some very dry medical books about, you know, what to expect, how to prepare for this enchanted evening. And so Dr. Butman showed some masculine initiative. He read and then he went out and he purchased all the suggested products that the book said would make his wife comfortable on their wedding night. Well, they actually honeymooned in the Adirondacks, and when their reception was over, they drove four hours, got there past midnight. They were exhausted. They changed in the dark, and Dr. Butman got all his preparations ready and prepared for his young bride to come together for the first time as, as husband and wife. And again, they were very nervous. And as they began consummating their marriage, Dr. Butman reached into the drawer of his night table and pulled, where he had placed a variety of marital aids, and pulled out what he thought was a tube of lubricant. He thought this would make his new bride as comfortable as possible. And he proceeded to apply the contents of that tube all over his wife, and she began kind of moving, then actually writhing, then kind of how, how, howling in pain. And that's when he turned on the lights by the night table and literally realized it was actually Crest toothpaste. Now, with baking soda. Ding! Oh! Needless to say, they did not consummate their marriage that night and in fact had to wait six or seven other days to try again, this time with the lights on, in some candid dialogue beforehand. Folks, here's the truth. God does not want his children to be ignorant, confused, or naive about sexuality. Silence is not a corrective to abuse and exploitation. Lack of candor actually just results in misunderstanding and pain. And the Bible actually makes clear that sex within marriage, far from being a, a sinful or painful endeavor, is actually intended to be one of the greatest, what? Gifts that God has given his married children to enjoy. Our, 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 our culture says nothing's sacred. Have sex with everyone. What's your hang-up? But the Bible would counter, no, 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 no. What could be more sacred? It is a living symbol of the love that God has for you. Literally. Sex is not a physical act. It is also spiritual art. And it's beautiful. It's sacred. It is, it is holy when experienced between a man and his wife in the covenant of marriage under God's banner. 
So here's the deal. Ephesians 5.31 puts it this way. It says this. For this reason, a man will what? Leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In other words, one plus one equals one. (laughs) There's no longer Tim and Colleen. There's Tico. (laughs) Uno. (laughs) We intertwine our lives, and actually that love makes us one. That's the power of godly sexuality. Paul writes, that's a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. I I thought he was talking about sex. He's like, I was. And his point is is that sex is a spiritual gift. And now actually when it's celebrated freely and frequently within the committed covenant of Christian marriage, it actually mirrors the love of Jesus Christ for you and for me. What? God desires me with all the sexual intensity of 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 a groom for his new bride? Indeed, he does. It can't be understated. And because of that, let me suggest, this is my thesis, that followers of Christ should actually be the most skilled and expert lovers in this world of ours. Neither conforming to our hypersexual culture, nor acting as naive Pollyannas who know nothing of deep, erotic, and fulfilling sexuality. Rather, I think Christian couples should be the one leading the conversation about healthy sex because only they embrace God's marital boundaries and actually understand the spiritual significance of the act. I mean, that's the best our world has to offer. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. That's the best you got. (laughs) I mean, that's it? Please. The world's view of sex is wholly inadequate. It is so much more than a biological act where lust kind of masquerades as love, hookups, hijack commitment, and selfishness. Get as much as you want and get out as quick as you can. Dethrone sacrifice. It is crude and it is soulless. And sex is about soul. And God doesn't want his children to settle for imposter lust, but actually celebrate with openness the gift that he's given, blessed, and actually, catch this, receives glory from when his children celebrate it within their marriage. So... Here's my question. Can we talk about sex? Are, are you up for it? Thumbs up? Okay, if you're up for it. Some of you, some of you have been holding your thumbs up the whole time. Guys like, I've been waiting. <laughs> right, awesome. There we go. Over the next two weeks, what we're going to do is take a very candid and practical look at the art of sexual intimacy. And I want to just give you a heads up here, parents. If you do have kids who um, maybe they're not emotionally mature enough at this point to handle this, you can send them to Liquid Kids at this point. I'm going to pray in just a minute. Um, but this is probably a PG-13 talk. It's straight out of scripture, Song of Songs, um, but it's quite explicit. And quite honestly, I'm like, you know what? Maybe they should stay. Honestly, they should stay because this could be their one chance to actually receive clear biblical teaching that is scripturally sound to look at sex through a biblical lens. Not the distorted funhouse mirror of MTV or, or, or what's snickered about in the locker room. Your call, you know your children best, you make the decision, so just use your parental discernment, all right? Let's pray real quick. This is a sensitive subject, Jesus. And as we bow our heads and just take a moment here, we want to ask you to send your spirit to teach us. Lord, would you just banish from this place and all of our campuses any feelings of guilt and shame, Lord, from past failures or or, or past sins. Lord, those are gone and forgiven in Christ. And we ask right now that you would just open up our hearts and make room for us, Lord, to explore your precious gift fully, freely, without embarrassment, so that we could serve actually as lights of truth in love, in a sin-darkened world. We ask that in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. 
Well, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to chapter 4 of the Song of Songs. That's where we're parking it. We're going to look at the first seven verses today. And I want you to imagine, this is the honeymoon. I want you to imagine Solomon, his young bride. They've been married. They're actually just leaving the wedding reception right now. They're pulling away in a Lincoln Town car. And, uh, and they're going to the Hyatt, and they're alone for their first time together. And that refrain, you remember that refrain from last week? Do not arouse or awaken love until when? Until it so desires is now over. It now is the time, right? It no longer applies. We said the world asked, where's the line? God asked, when's the time? Now's the time. Wake up, love. Time to shake the raisins, okay? That's where we're starting here in chapter four. And I want you to imagine, you've seen the cliche, but I want you to imagine Solomon takes his bride in his arms and they cross the threshold, boom, into the honeymoon suite at the Hyatt. They are all alone. It is quiet. And what does he say? Verse one, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are what? Doves. He calls her eyes doves, which were a symbol of purity, of innocence. He is praising her virginity. He is praising her chastity. They have safeguarded this. Doesn't mean if you screw up, you can't start over. This is an idealized account here. But there's this moment here where this couple looks at each other. And this is what God intended, that they actually, this couple is looking before each other with their sexual integrity intact. And they finally stand completely open and free before one another to indulge for the first time. Solomon says this, here where it begins. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. And and, and you got to admit, there's a little puzzling here. Right? I mean, Solomon's quick with his words and compliments and all, but let me tell you something, husbands, you begin undressing your wife, you don't say, you look like a goat. This is not a win, okay? This is not a win here, and obviously, this is a compliment. This will actually kindle any, any romance you're trying to spark up. But in Solomon's world, this had a very specific meaning. Most likely, Solomon is beginning to undress his wife here from the top down in a Middle Eastern culture. Brides didn't wear a veil. They wore a wedding cap. And so likely, he is taking the cap off of his Mideastern bride, and her hair begins tumbling down. It's no secret, obviously, Jewish women often have thick, black, curly hair here. And what he's saying is, this reminds me of the silky wool of the black goats that I see grazing on the hillside of Mount Gilead. He's being romantic. He's whispering in her ear. He's nuzzling into her hair as her hair cascades down her shoulders. Now, here's my question, ladies. How do you think she's feeling at this moment? Mm, What's her response? Look at verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. What is she doing? She's what? She's smiling, right? She's smiling. She's like, look at you. You have an amazing smile. That's how we know she's like it, right? He's like, look at you. They're like, they're like freshly washed sheep. You use whitening strips. How nice. This is amazing. He continues, each of them has its twin. Not one of them is alone. This girl has all her teeth. This is such a win in the romance department. It really is. There's this amazing, so practical, the Bible. And they show that she's enjoying Solomon's verbal praise, right? He's making these wonderful verbal caresses, and she's smiling. Now, guys, what would you do next? See if you can figure this out. Her hair is down. She's smiling. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. What's he moving in for? Look at, look at you, Hebrew scholars, you know this. Move to the front row. You, are, you guys know Hebrew. He's moving in for a kiss. That's exactly what. 
He is moving in tenderly. And, and here's the thing. What's her physiological response as he kisses her? See if you can get this. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. What's happening to her? What's happening? She's what? Yeah, she, she's blushing, right? You guys ever seen a pomegranate? You ever split one open? What color is it? Red, pink, right? And, and her face is getting flushed, right? Like a pomegranate. Again, here we go. Passion fruit talk. And she's starting to tingle to her husband's touch and respond to his verbal and tender caresses. So he kisses her mouth and keeps moving south. Verse four, your neck is like the tower of David built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. She's got a long neck. Actually, most likely she's wearing a necklace here. Maybe it's possibly a wedding gift. Those shields were hung actually on the Tower of David, which was an architectural marvel, actually, of Solomon's day. The Israelites took great pride in it. So in other words, he's saying, this woman is actually standing straight and tall before me. She isn't bowed in like shame, like, oh, don't look at me. And she's not like rigid under his touch or, or, or his gaze. And while she's wearing this necklace, what else is she wearing? Apparently little else. Verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. And I'm just going to let that sit there for a minute. (laughs) Just how awkward is this, right? I mean, some of you are kind of squirming about this, right? He likens her breast to baby deer. Now, I don't know what that means to you, but here in New Jersey, to me, um, we got deer all over the place by my house, okay? And they are not impressed by me. If you're ever driving a car in New Jersey at night, you know, those big bucks are, like walking across the street and like you like flick your lights, eh, 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 they're just like, they walk right across, they could care less. But once in a while, you see fawns, you see baby deer, and when you see baby deer, what, what are they like, right? They're, they're, they're perky, you know, they're playful. You know, you, you want to pet them? She's like, he's like, you remind me of two baby deer. And all of a sudden you realize this is very, very intimate and unashamed. There is no shame. It is a picture, my friends, of total vulnerability. Total openness. There's nothing obscene, nothing vulgar about it. It is beautiful as God imagined it. And it's intentional. Remember this. Solomon is a man with a what? A man with a plan. And from their courtship now to their honeymoon, he always had a roadmap of where he wanted to take his wife, how he was going to intentionally love her. Look at his plan here, by the way, verses one through five, right? Eyes, hair, teeth, lips, cheeks, neck, breasts. He's working his way sequentially. This boy's got a plan. This guy knew what he was doing, which is one of the reasons... God chose to highlight their marital sexual relationship in his word this way. It is a picture of slow and tender foreplay. It is. Let us kind of call it out here. Again, no embarrassment. You'll actually notice while there's touch involved, Solomon focuses primarily actually on the emotional caress of his young wife. And as the wisest man in the Bible, he knew a secret. I'm going to ask you, husbands, let's see how good your, your, your... sexual knowledge is. This is awkward. Husbands, what is the most sensitive sexual organ of your wife? Think of all the different things we have surveyed here. How would, don't answer out loud. Don't do that. How would you answer that question? The most sensual sex, uh, the sensual sexitive, what organ is it? It's her what? Mind. It's her mind, guys. His verbal caresses and reassurances are simply doing what he's always done, which is create an atmosphere 
of total emotional safety in which this woman feels cherished and protected and free to unfold like the flower that she is. It's amazing, guys. Look at his techniques. Notice, what, what does he do to, to kind of lower her natural inhibitions? Notice he actually uses words, not drinks. Right? Take a look at this. He praises her beauty, uses words of kindness, and when he touches her, he does it gently. Remember, twin fawns, okay? Baby deer. You don't get that this guy can kind of barrel it out of the gate, you know? Like, I know, like, people sometimes when I, when I marry them in a wedding, it's kind of like, you know, I'm like, take it easy, you know, because it's like, you know, wedding night. It's like, I've waited 33 years for this, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And that, 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 that's a mistake many newlyweds make. Um, I want to recommend to you a phenomenal book. It's something Colleen and I have read together. It is called Sheet Music, Uncovering the Secrets of Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. And uh, we've read this together. It's by a guy named Dr. Kevin Lehman. He is a Christian psychologist and marriage counselor. And he writes this. He says, when it comes to sex on the honeymoon, or even frankly, when I'm talking to men in general, I like to talk about sex ASAP. Most people think ASAP means as soon as possible. But in this case, it means sex as slow as possible. The new groom needs to have this slogan burned into his mind if he wants to give his wife a special evening. Lehman continues, For starters, men, walking out of the hotel bathroom nude and giving a full salute can be shocking and even horrifying to a woman who has never even seen an erect penis. It's not nearly the turn-on for a woman that some young men apparently think it is. Sadly, this tactic is all too common. You wouldn't believe the number of grooms who try this out on the first night. I tell men to go three times slower and ten times more gently than they think they need to. You can go ahead, Aaron. You've waited this long. I won't, you don't need 30 minutes to set the scene. Won't kill you. I think that is a great piece of advice, not just to newlyweds, but to those of us who've actually been married for decades. Because reality is, guys, women need time and sensitivity to warm up sexually. I've said this before, but men and women are not wired the same sexually. Why don't you think of it this way? If, if, if women are like ovens. If you want to cook something on 450 degrees, when do you have to turn that oven on? Yeah, about an hour before, because it takes time for that thing to, to preheat, right? If women are like ovens, men are like blowtorches. Full intensity, man. It doesn't take much. Some of you never recovered from the raisins and the pomegranates. You're like, what the, what the, it was shaking the raisins. We're on. <laughs> I actually came across a great picture, I think, that illustrates this fundamental difference between how men and women are wired sexually. This tells it all. For those, yeah, huh? That about captures it. For those of you listening online, the picture I'm showing actually has two control panels. The top one uh, is labeled men and it has one switch on off. <laughs> the bottom one, though, Lotus, the one labeled women, it looks like the, the dashboard of the space shuttle. Right? It's got every conceivable dial and pressure gauge and button and everything. It is very intimidating because it is very, very complex. And you know what? That's a picture of it. We, I think, honestly, it captures something of the truth that women are created by God in some ways to be more sophisticated creatures than men. And this is not just Tim's opinion. I want you to think back now. Think biblically. Think deductively. Back to the book of Genesis. Think of the creation account. What does God create first, right? Sky, water, land, sea, the basic elements. What does he create next? Animals, fish, birds, reptiles, livestock. Then he creates who? Adam, man, right? In other words, God created in order of ascending sophistication. Now think about this. Who is his final creation? 
Eve. In other words, the crowning achievement of God's sophisticated creation and design in Genesis is the woman. So in other words, biblically, man may be the head, but woman is the neck that turns it. All right? You get the idea here. There's something to this. It honestly makes me feel a little bit for Adam, who I think undoubtedly saw this. this un- Imagine Adam first seeing Eve. He's alone. He's always seen his animals and like livestock and, you know, baby deer maybe. But he, then all of a sudden, this incredibly sophisticated creature begins walking towards Adam in the garden. And he just can barely get out two words. Whoa, man. This is actually where we get the word woman from. That's not true. Don't write that down. Erase it. That's not, that's not true at all. But it's it, honestly, bluntly stated, men are quite honestly up for having sex just about any time of the day or night and appreciate it in just about any form. Um, it's, 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 it's scary. I mean, we quickly heat up at the drop of a hat. I mean, you go down the produce aisle, man, you see cantaloupes, whoop, it doesn't take much. A woman, on the other hand, heats up slowly, needs time, needs tenderness, needs reassurances to be ready to be intimate. And here's the deal, guys. If sex is not linked to kindness, to gentleness, to appreciation for all of her being, it is very difficult for a wife to fully enjoy and give herself to. Too frequently, husbands tend to divorce sex from the total relationship. I mean, this was a big wake-up call for me uh, early in our marriage. I'm not going to use a lot of illustrations, uh, live examples for obvious reasons, but I was 27 years old, and I assumed Colleen was wired up the same way as me. I, I assumed the petting zoo was open 24-7. I thought that's just how it goes there. Dr. Dr. Butman said, no. Uh, I was just like, this is great. This is going to be morning sex, you know, lunchtime, I'll come home, you know, sex, dinner, sex, you know before bed. Come on, we're in bed. And when that didn't happen, (laughs) I rudely began to realize that Colleen's sexual receptivity was directly related to the emotional closeness that we shared. And I felt tricked. I felt totally tricked. I was like, wait, wait, let me get this straight. You're telling me you're not in the mood because we haven't connected? That's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to connect. What, what do you call this, you know? Or on the other hand, I was completely confused because I'd be caught off guard in the other direction. I remember one time we spent a family uh, reunion at a weekend, actually, up with her, with her family. And honestly, I mean, just good people. But it was torture from my perspective. And coming home, I was completely wiped out. I felt like it sucked the life out of me from spending the weekend with these people. But then I realized they're my family and they matter a whole great deal to Colleen. And actually, we're driving home, and all of a sudden, suddenly I feel someone's fingers going through my hair as I'm driving. And I'm just, what? And then there's this hot breath in my ear. And I'm just like, did we bring the dog? Is he in the back seat? What happened? It wasn't our dog. And Colleen leaned over, and she goes, hey, thanks for spending the day with them. You know what? That means a lot to me. I always felt, last year I felt so lonely going up there all by myself. And this, you being with me, means everything. Let me tell you something. You're driving on 287. Doesn't matter what time it is. You're going to hit the gas. Man, I drove home. And the point is, guys, Solomon is showing us how vital it is to see sex with your wife in the bigger context of your entire relationship. In his classic book, it's called Intended for Pleasure. That's another one I can recommend to you. Sex Technique and Sexual Fulfillment in Christian Marriage. Dr. Ed Wheat writes this. He says, Husband, be aware that your wife views the sex act as part of her what her total relationship with you, even though you, like other men, may think of it separately. That means, guys, that intentional, loving kindness in the everyday, seemingly trivial things 
will directly impact the frequency and depth of your sexual intimacy. In other words, sex for a woman begins way before the physical act itself. You guys want to know what the number one aphrodisiac is in the Lucas household? If I, I'm just going to unscripted moment. Let's just be honest about this. If I, want, if I want to get Colleen in the mood, I know what to do. I slip into a little article of clothing and it never fails. I'm going to show you what it is. It never fails to turn my wife on every time I slip into this thing. Behold, the rubber yellow glove. Man, when I want to get her in the mood, I just kind of slip into this thing and I get going. What, what did you think I was going to pull out? A leopard thong? I mean, come on, this is a church. I put on the yellow gloves. Here's why. It never fails. She can't resist because honestly, this communicates to her. Tim is going to help me clean the kitchen. Can you imagine this? Hell is freezing over or my husband wants to go to the place of splendor in the grass. Literally, that's what this is. Quite honestly, um, uh, when we got married, this was a huge source of tension for us because the kitchen, I could care less about. And we always would get in fights early in our marriage about how I'd leave the dishes in the sink piled up, yada, yada, yada. I always thought she was just overreacting. Like, what's her deal? But I had a friend. He was a Christian buddy. He actually been married for five years. And after one of our early fights, I kind of told him, she's being crazy about this stuff. He pulled me aside. He goes, dude, the kitchen isn't the kitchen. I was like, what do you mean the kitchen isn't the kitchen? He's like, it means so much more to the woman. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, it's a reflection of like who she is as a homemaker. And she wants to make it clean and orderly for like, you know, for, for it's not just for you, it's for family and guests to, to kind of, it's her way. It's like how you feel about your job. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, keeping it clean is actually speaking her love language, her primary love language, which is really acts of service with Colleen. He's like, so in other words, whenever you wash a dish or you put your mug back in the closet, it's like telling her that you love her, you respect her, you cherish her as a wife, lover, mother, friend, Christian sister. It means you understand her as a woman and care for her as queen of the home. And I'm like, dude, they're just gloves. He's like, try it out. I was like, all right. And I discovered something. Man, cleaning the kitchen is a major turn-on for my wife. So in the Lucas household, that's where sex starts. It starts in the kitchen, not in the bedroom. It begins with a snap of the rubber glove. <laughs> Husbands, what is it? Where does sex begin for you in your house? What is it? Do you even know what your wife's primary love language is? It's interesting. I think it changes. For me, I'm a verbal guy, so I like verbal affirmation. There's a book called The Five Love Languages. Verbal affirmation is big for me. Physical touch, shocker. Uh, my wife's has actually changed because I think it's moved as we have kids. Notice how quickly it becomes acts of service. Like, I need some help here. The question is, do you know the words and actions that communicate powerfully that you truly love her and actually want to serve her like Christ? This is the launching pad, guys, for sizzling sex. I know. You have to speak the primary love language of your wife in emotional terms if you are going to enjoy maximum pleasure and physical intimacy. Solomon got it. He knew the love language of his young bride, that's for sure, and he treated her as his partner, not his plaything. Amen? Yeah? His words, his acts of love created this electric atmosphere for the consummation of their marriage, and that's what they did. In verse 6, we're told this, it says... Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go where? To the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Until the day breaks. Translation, Solomon made love to his wife all night long. I will spare you the Lionel Richie song. Some of you want to see me dance. I ain't going to do it. Until the day breaks, they went slow. Until the shadows flee, they took their time. 
I will go to the mountain of myrrh. In other words, I will go to the mountain upstairs and to the hill of incense, the area downstairs, all night long. And their passion lasted until dawn. This is the Bible. You got the point. Both husband and wife lost themselves. They were intoxicated in the deep pleasures of godly lovemaking within the hearth of Christian marriage. There was a a sweetness to it, a fragrance. There was no hints of greediness or hasty lust. It was a celebration, unashamed, totally vulnerable, full of pleasure, because that's how God designed it, guys. He designed it this way. Verse 7 ends with these words. All beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. I think that's significant. Because these are Solomon's incredible words in which he frames this entire lovemaking experience with his wife. And if you remember when he first met this girl, what was the problem, right? In other words, she, she was in the fields, if you remember. She was insecure about what? Her appearance, how she looked. My skin's too dark. Don't look too close. I'm like a wildflower. I'm nothing special to look at. She was embarrassed how she looked working in the field. Now, I want you to think about this. How much more embarrassed do you think she felt at this moment? Totally exposed for the first time before her husband, who is the king of Israel. Yet, what's her husband say? He looks her over from head down to toe and says, All beautiful you are. All beautiful. My darling, there is no flaw you. In other words, he caps this intimate encounter by speaking directly into the most sensitive spot in her soul, her nagging sense of inferiority about her physical appearance. And guys, this is a huge consideration for most women. Most women have a whole laundry list of hang-ups about some part of their anatomy, Even the youngest newlywed can stand in front of the mirror and see just scores of imperfections that wouldn't even register on on your radar, husbands. Her her, her waist is too wide or it's too skinny. Or or, or, or the stretch marks, oh gosh, they're kind of spreading. Her her, her breasts are too big or too small or too something. Solomon says, no, 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 my sweet. That's not how I see you. I have looked you over. And how beautiful you are. There is no flaw in my eyes in you. How can he say that? With integrity. This is not just BS, guys. This isn't just sweet talk. This is Solomon's direction to you to tell that wife of yours that in your eyes, she is the portrait of perfection. Perfect for you and no one else. One of the most painful things a man can do to his wife is actually highlight some deficiency in her appearance. And that deep emotional wound, guys, it's one she may forgive, but she will never forget. Mark it. Never forget. And you don't have to be a total insensitive mook to do this, by the way. A lot of us are more subtle sometimes. Hey, uh, whatever happened to your jogging routine? (laughs) Poke, poke. What is this, like the 12th diet you've been on? Man, your wife may not be a supermodel, but she is your wife given to you by God, and she needs to hear that she pleases you. And that as far as you're concerned, she is perfect in your eyes. There is no flaw. Solomon says, this gift from God, I wouldn't change a thing. And you know what? A woman who absorbs that and feels cherished by her husband and unconditionally embraced in that way, how do you think she'll respond? She'll hold little back. That's how love works. And here's more, guys. That loving embrace of your wife, faults and all, is not just critical to godly lovemaking. It is a mirror of the way Christ loves you. It is a literal mirror. 
Remember in Ephesians 5, Paul compares intimacy in a marriage to the love relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, Scripture speaks of Christ as the bridegroom in the church. That's us as literally his bride. And the idea that Paul's getting at here is that when Jesus presents each of us before the altar of heaven on our wedding day, and we stand there exposed in the harsh light of God's holiness, in other words, painfully aware of all our flaws, all of our shortcomings, all of our sins, all our imperfections, God looks us up and down and says, because of who you're married to and whose love you are trusting in, perfect. I see no flaw in you because your husband's love has covered you like a banner. His blood has covered every sin. Oh, perfect you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. That literally is the power of love to transform and remake somebody in God's sight. Christ's love literally has transformed us. His love covers any imperfections you have and all our sins covered by him, and he alone, the Bible says, is able to present you radiant and faultless and without blemish before God's throne as if we've never sinned, as a bride without rain or wrinkle, stain, or blemish, none. That's how the Bible describes our wedding day, what Jesus Christ did for us. And that's why Paul commands husbands in Ephesians 5. I love this, the message translation of verse 25. It says, husbands... Go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by what? By giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. That is a compelling picture of sex. Is it not? It's incredible, guys. We, we follow our leader, our model, Christ, in everything, including the bedroom. Think about that. And in Solomon's words to his bride, we hear echoes of God's passion to those of us trusting in Jesus. All flawless you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Perfect. You see the connection? Sex is not just a primal, biological, animalistic act. It is a spiritual art intended to reflect the way God accepts us in Jesus. You get it? That's how God designed it. And that's why the Bible speaks so candidly and unashamedly of sex within marriage. Because they're like, it is God's divine creation to be celebrated. It is intended for pleasure, for comfort, and it reflects the glory of Jesus' love for you and me. Amen? Can I hear amen? Amen. All right. We're going to stop here and take some time for questions. So uh, just a reminder, you can text your questions to us right now at 47201. Just type HEAT and then your question. And what we're doing is we're aggregating all of these questions and really getting to some of the most popular and relevant ones. And uh, to help give a female perspective, I'm going to invite my wife, Colleen, out. Can you welcome my lovely wife, Colleen, to the stage? Hey, sweet girl. All right. Good. Let me move the, uh, the rubber gloves. I will save them for later. Just saying. (laughs) Awesome. So just remember, just text those to us and we'll try to get to those. Uh, Let me start with the first question. What do you guys got? Let's hear what we got. 
This series is hard to hear. My husband and I are close to divorce, loveless marriage. Is there any hope? Wow. Well, you know, I mean, first off, honestly, uh, just to totally honor your question, I think that's one of the most honest questions we've gotten. And uh, you're not alone. I think there are a lot of people out there who are in marriage and actually feel more lonely than if they were single, uh, quite honestly, and in a lot of pain. Uh, and just don't want to minimize that or trivialize that. This is, an, this is an idealized portrait, obviously, in the Song of Solomon, but, I mean, we've gone through rough patches. Yeah, we've had, Tim and I have had um, two really rough patches that I can think of specifically, and one was at the beginning of our marriage, and as he explained to you, it was uh, really difficult trying to work out the kinks. I mean, we had dated for eight years and you think at that point that you know everything about that person, but to actually live together was a totally different thing. And she was so messy (laughs) to work out the rhythm and the flow. And also, you know, Tim basically wanted to have sex every minute and me feeling guilty about not wanting to, it was just a difficult time. I take umbrage that I was every two, every two minutes make me sound like an animal. And I think even recently we've had a yeah. hard time. Like at the beginning of this church two years ago, um, it was literally one of the most difficult times in our marriage. Yeah. I mean, uh, just on my part, honestly, I mean, usually it takes two to tango and it does, but uh, I totally neglected Colleen when we launched this church in Morristown. I mean, it was, you know, not, I don't mean just like working a lot of hours, but I began giving my heart, I think, to ministry more than to our marriage. And, you know, I, I always thought I took safeguards not to be that guy, but she could tell that I was just getting more enjoyment and more drive out of that than our marriage. And that was really hurtful. And I had to, uh, we, had a, we had a total breakthrough moment where I think we were sitting on the couch and you were telling me for the 19th time about this. And God just totally like, punctured my heart. And I just got it. I saw the pain, I think, in, in you. And it just, it broke me. Uh, and I had to repent of that. Imagine this. I had to repent of church <laughs> and say, I'm sorry, Jesus. Your church became more important than my marriage. This is my bride. The church is your bride. So I'm actually going to give myself to this one. And I actually had to confess my sin to Colleen and, and, and tell you that and ask your forgiveness and ask God's forgiveness. Um, but that was as recently as, you know, the last two years. Um, I, I think in this question, um, my husband and I are close to divorce. Is there any hope? If you're asking, can you save your marriage? Just totally candidly, the answer is no, you can't. Um, whenever I marry people at a wedding, I usually say, hey, this is a beautiful scene, and this marriage has all the chances of success. There are only two problems with this wedding, you and you. Uh, in other words, um, whenever two people marry, two sinners are marrying. <laughs> in other words, there's going to be hurt, and people are going to step on one another. And if you think that you're going to change for that person because you love them, it's not going to happen. Um, there's, you know, actually, there's a... There's a uh, Look at, look at, quick go, look at chapter three of the Song of Songs. We didn't have time for this, but this is the description of Solomon's wedding here. It says, um, uh, who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke? And that was symbolic. The Israelites would have known it was symbolic to the, to the, to the pillar of fire and cloud that the Israelites followed. So in other words, when Solomon was going to his wedding day, he was following God. And the idea here is that that's why you're getting married because you're not just committing to one another, but to God, because at some point this is going to fail. This is going to fall flat. It's not going to feel like this person loves me. I don't love her. We're going to have this. But would you be willing to change for God? Would you be willing to follow him and do whatever it says, even if it means you changing and not them? That's a scary thing. Uh, And most people don't feel that way. Um, It actually says this. This is what I kind of love. There's a description of Solomon's wedding party. It says, look, it's Solomon's carriage, um, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, Prepared for the terrors of the night. 
That's, that's how his groomsmen were on the wedding day. He's prepared for the terrors of the night with the sword, you know. Like, this is going to be a cakewalk. I don't think so. He surrounded himself by friends who were willing to fight for him. Um, and I think that's significant because I think, honestly, when we hurt one another, what most couples do, or at least what we see, is that they find their friends who will support and, uh, and totally uh, endorse whatever it is they're feeling. Oh, I can't believe he would do that to you. He's such a bum. Oh, my gosh, you should totally leave him. I don't think I, I would have never stayed with him. I'd never put up with that. We surround ourselves with people who actually will take our side. When you invite God in to fight for your marriage, he doesn't take sides. He takes over. And he does that by surrounding you with friends who actually will fight for your marriage and not just for individuals. We have friends who did that for us. The guy who told me about the yellow gloves. Uh, I think John did that at one time in the kitchen conflict. And our, our counselor? Counseling. Counseling has been a big deal for us. I mean, just in terms of getting us on the right track and rails when things have gone off the rails. Um, we even do that just as a, as a yearly tune-up anyway, just to keep things going because they naturally break down. I like that. It says, um, all of them wearing the sword experienced in battle. You need people to show you the way. Uh, Solomon had people who were experienced, who were willing to fight for him and with them for the marriage because they knew it was going to be hard. So there's, there, there is hope, but not just in reading a Dr. Phil book or I'm just going to try a little bit harder next week. It, it's a long road back. Friends, counseling, God, big deal. Uh, okay, uh, next question, real quick. Let's take two more. If God completes me, why do I struggle so much with being single? Uh, honestly, honestly, I feel like the church has a lot to do with that. I, I think, quite honestly, um, a lot of churches indirectly, implicitly, kind of have this message like marriage is superior uh, to singlehood. I, I think the Christian church just does that and does a number quite honestly, on single folks. If you are single, I need to apologize to you on, on behalf of Liquid. Um, that is not our intention. I mean, your singlehood is not a wasted time. You're not like in a holding pattern. It is usually a season of life that God can use powerfully to create you and, and to becoming the kind of, the, the, with a marrying kind of love. Um, but honestly, we went to that conference. Remember that one time? It was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> Pairs and spares. <laughs> Pairs and spares was the name of the group. We, we went to this conference, and there was a breakout session for couples and singles, and it was called Pairs and Spares, as if, like, single people were, like, leftover parts or, like, extra parts. It was just like, oh, my gosh, it's horrible. Um, but I, the way the Bible puts it is that um, the question is about calling. It's not about contentment. It's what are you called to. Uh, Paul says, um, I wish everybody were single as I were, um, but it's better to be married than to burn with passion. In other words, Paul said, I can devote more time to Christ being single, and Paul was actually single. Um, but he says, but I also recognize the practical, that that's not a calling for everybody. Um, the statistics are 90% of you will be married at some point. Over half of that will divorce. Um, hence our first question. Literally, Jesus says, uh, if you are get married, you will have trouble in this life. I mean, it's like a, it's a promise of scripture. No one likes to claim that, but it's a promise of scripture that you will have trouble. But the question is a matter of calling. It's not so much contentment. And the question I think would be, ask your friends. I mean, we have a couple of friends who are definitely called to singlehood, a lifetime of, of celibacy, and you can just tell it. I mean, they are close to God. They are not lonely. They have a deep contentment with their friends and their family. Um, I am definitely not called that way, um, and, and, and a lot of people are not. But I think it's a kind of a matter of calling. And so I would actually say talk to your campus pastor, talk to your friends. They know you best. Do you think I'm called that way? No, I think you're kind of, kind of built to probably be in a, a long-term covenant with somebody. But it won't be easy. Um, both of them have their challenges. You want to add anything to that? No. <laughs> Pairs and spares. That was unbelievable. It's like a bowling class. <laughs> this is bowling? All right, last question, last question. How much is normal for a newly married couple? 
I like that they don't even explain what they're asking about. It just says, how much is normal for a newly married couple? I don't know. What would you... However many times you do it, that's normal. <laughs> that's, that's actually a good answer. Uh, I, we, we had totally different expectations going into marriage. And like I said, it was a source of, of great tension for us. Um, but it is something that evolves over marriage, quite honestly. Um, I think it can become a huge source of friction. It, sex, money is typically the top two things that couples fight over. Uh, next week, we're actually going to talk about this because what often happens is one partner feels like they want it more than more frequently or whatever with the other partner, and then it becomes this, this bartering tool. You kind of use it to manipulate. I keep the gates open and close it if, you're, if I don't like you or things like that. And it can become actually a real source of actually spiritual damage and wounding in a marriage. So we're going to talk about that um, next week, I think, for sure. Um, but these are great questions, um, and just want to remind you, if you have more questions, to text them to 47201, and you can do that now, you can do it during the week, whenever you have your cell phone, and again, we're going to get to those, if you're on the internet campus, let us know, and we'll get to some more next week. Um, I think my wife looks resplendent in yellow. Can we thank Colleen? Great job, sweet girl, all right? Let's all stand, let's all stand, all of our campuses, we're going to pray and take us out here. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a place we can just be honest, Lord. Um, you've given us marriage as a gift. You've given sex as a gift, Father. And, and, and we just know um, we've, we've sometimes made a mockery of it. Sometimes we've damaged it, Father. Sometimes we've abused it. But, Lord, there's still great hope because you are the God of second chances. Thank you, Jesus, that you give a chance to clear our histories, Lord, and to give us hope and a future. Lord, I pray for marriages right now that are ailing, that feel like they're flatlined, I pray for the couples right now who are in this room or right now literally feel hopeless. They feel like they are on the brink of divorce, Lord God. Right now, would you speak to them? Lord Jesus, breathe your hope. We have no hope apart from you, Lord, and we know that you can resurrect their marriage. You resurrected your son, Jesus, from the dead, and you can resurrect the marriage, and I pray that you do it. Thank you so much for my wife, Colleen, Lord. Thank you for our church. Thank you that we are your bride. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, who presents us faultless before you, not because of anything we did, but for the sacrifice of his life for ours. We thank you for that kind of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, awesome to be with you. We'll see you next week for part five. Take care. See you guys.